Ladies and gentlemen, welcome or welcome back to the JKWD podcast. And we hope you're having a wonderful day. Because if you're not already, you're about to. I don't want to belabor this intro too long because we had a long, wonderful, I'd say conversation, but mostly it was just a lesson. Stephen spent nine years in the military and then he went on to government work and now he's consulting uh, for government organizations and businesses. Um, And uh, I think Marlena has something to say. You can probably hear her squeaking in the background. Um, <laughs> so we had a consultant today with Marlena on his podcast. Um, she approved of the speaker. <laughs> so I, I think there's a there are a lot of lessons, a lot of entertaining stories in here. Uh, Kelvin, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful, and I'm doing better since I heard heard uh, since we had this interview. Uh, life is life is good, and. Um, the snow cleared away a couple of days ago, mostly, and uh, it was almost all gone yesterday, but I'm hearing rumors about what's supposed to happen this weekend. <laughs> yeah, happy, happy spring, central New York. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. We're having a good time. How about you? Yeah, we're doing good here. Um, been sunny, been warm. We're, we've been outside getting some running in, getting some walking in. We're going to open the grill tonight. Oh yeah, you're back to uh, running, huh? Yeah, when I can, I don't get I don't get out much, but mm. um, when I get when I get an hour that I can have for me, then and I'll do that. And another couple of months, Marlene will be holding her head up, and um, we'll be able to put her in a jogging stroller and really go for a really go for a go for you know a mm. few days a week. She'll be traveling early. Yep. Cool. Yes, she will. All right. So I think that we should drop in the music here and uh, just you know, let let the people listen to Stephen Mays. And yeah. uh, on the other side of it, I hope you all have a wonderful day. See you in a bit. Let's have you introduce your your mission to to our listeners and and why that's your mission. Okay, well, um, I, I wrote a book called The Power of Three: Lessons in Leadership, and I wrote it because I had talked about leadership and been involved in leadership in various businesses and activities I've done all my life. And my friend said, "Well, you know, you ought to write a book." So I finally sat down and tried to write the book. But the reason I did it was because, uh, as with most people, I've experienced some really, really good leadership uh, from people uh, along the way, and I've experienced some really poor leadership. And I came to understand that we have a dearth of good leadership in the country and in the world, and we all suffer because of it. So I wanted to try to be 
part of the solution. I wanted to look at things and say, what is it about leadership that uh, we can learn? What is it that I wish I had learned a long time ago? Rather than having to be kicked around in the College of Hard Knocks and find it out on my own. And I discovered that many of these things are not rocket science. Um, they're pretty straightforward, but you have to have them organized and put forward in a way that makes sense in a, in a more overall uh, comprehensive, uh, comprehensive uh, situation. So that's why I wrote the book. Um, and I also wrote it intentionally short. I think it's about 64 pages long with mm -hmm. pictures uh, because um, I realized that if you have to defend on something that is um, 240 pages long to guide your leadership career, you're already lost. Because, uh, <laughs> okay. because when some terrible thing happens and uh, you say, oh, I, I, I think I read about this on one, page 175 or was that on one page 56? I can't remember. Then you're, you're, you're gone. You have to be able to have something you can listen to and understand and grasp uh, at a fairly straightforward level um, more quickly than a 300-page book would, would, would allow you. So as I was, went around reading it, I started finding more and more things that made sense. Uh, the people that I had known who were really good leaders, I noticed that there were things that they did. And the people I experienced who were not very good leaders, uh, I noticed that they did not do those things. And so that's how those things began to coalesce. And that's where I wrote up and put together my Power of Three paradigm, which is in the book, which describes everything about leadership in um, organizations and groups of threes, not the least of which is because I do have triplets. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, coaches will tell you uh, that if you call a timeout in the game and you tell your team to do something, Three is the maximum number of things they can ever remember. Because uh, um, if you try to tell them to do four or five things, then things won't get done. So I tried to try to do things in groups of threes because it just seemed like a natural fit for uh, how things just generally work out. Um, the number three is everywhere you look. Um, all three of us here, we have height. We have width. Some of us have a little more depth that we deserve, but uh, we can work on that. Uh, everywhere you look, you see threes. Um, and so it became uh, one of those things that just kind of snuck up on me. And I said, well, yeah, the three is a big number and it really helps things in a way that makes it easy for people to understand. So that was the uh, genesis of the power of three. And my purpose was to try to put together information and to get through training and lectures and talks talk to young people about leadership so that if they want to become better leaders, they will have something more than just go out and do good. You know, that's a nice sentiment, but it really doesn't help you actually do something. Right. It doesn't help you with the, how do you do good? <laughs> well, exactly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big, um, fan of, uh, I don't know if you know Simon Sinek. Sure. Yes. Uh, his, his book was his start with why which I think is really good. He has, a, he has a, uh, a presentation he makes of what he calls the golden circle. Inside the golden circle is why. The next ring out in the golden circle is how, or is, excuse me, is, is, is what. And then the last ring out there is how. And everybody seems to be focused on how most of the time with respect to leadership rather than what. 
And so I found a, a missing piece, I think, between why and how. But I think if people look at, they can get much better at doing leadership than they may have otherwise been able to do. Because when you look at how, everybody focuses on style. Everybody focuses on, and if you go Google leadership, you'll find uh, like between seven and 13 different leadership styles. There's the autocratic leader. There's a democratic leader. There's a participatory leader. There's the servant leader. There's uh, all kinds of different characteristics of styles. And it immediately became obvious to me that that was missing the point because every individual has a personality. Every individual has a style of interacting with people. And uh, then I started looking, well, if style is that important, it doesn't seem to make sense to me because, well, um, Winston Churchill had a completely different personality and style than Nelson Mandela. Um, George Patton had a completely different personality and style than Mahatma Gandhi. And um, uh, Douglas MacArthur had a completely different personality and style than Martin Luther King Jr. So if all six of those people are great leaders and they have completely different personalities and styles, the leadership can't be about personality and style. There has to be something else there. And that's what I started looking for when I was writing the uh, Power Three. And that's what I think I came up with in terms of the uh, things that matter most about what leaders do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to talk about what they do rather than focus on the style in which they do it. And I think when I did that, I discovered an awful lot of things about myself, my leadership journey, about things that happened to me along the way. And um, I thought, you know, this is, this is stuff that I should have been taught. It's not that hard. I should have been taught this along the way. I, mean, I graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1974, mm -hmm. and I had exactly zero edu uh, formal educational courses in leadership. It was just oh, something really? I was expected to pick up from being around leaders. Uh, and I just think that's the wrong way to do it. Um, they've changed their methodology in the way they do things now. They have much more dedicated uh, educational experience uh, practices at the Naval Academy and all the service academies about leadership, which is a good thing. Uh, but the more I looked, the more I found things that were just not talked about. Um, and not emphasized. And I read different books about leadership, and, and they just seem to be incomplete and not very, um, not very comprehensive in the, the approach to taking to what leaders do. And I think that's the question most people, when they try to get into leadership, well, what am I supposed to do? And uh, there weren't a lot of things that really addressed that issue. So that was why I was writing a book the way I wrote it. And that's what I've been doing since then is trying to get that word out. Awesome. So before we jump straight into those three pillars, can you tell us a little bit about um, you know, just maybe a couple of examples of, of good leaders and bad leaders you've um, dealt with uh, throughout your throughout your life and service? Well, I can think of um, one uh, one uh, man I knew in the Navy who was my squadron commander. Um, in, um, when I was in Pearl Harbor on the USS Los Angeles. Uh, the squadron commander was the man who was in charge of several submarines and their functions and lives. The uh, squadron commander I had was a uh, unbelievably terrifically engaged leader. Um, he cared about 
performance, but he also cared about the welfare and the capabilities and the needs of the people who were doing the performing. Um, and that really stood out, unfortunately, because I didn't see a lot of that elsewhere. Um, he was only there for about the six months or so when I was on the Los Angeles and he got called back to Washington to handle some emergency and eventually became the top guy in the Navy, he became the chief of Naval operations and for good reason. Um, so that particular situation I saw, I said, wow, that's really great leadership. And then I had commanding officers and other officers I interfaced with um, who seemed to be focused always on the negative all the time. You know, um, it's the old joke about the attaboys and the aw shits. Mm -hmm. You know, 14,000 attaboys qualifies you to pick your nose in public, but one aw shit wipes the whole slate clean and you got to start all over again. Uh, so when the people are focused on perfection and people are focused on finding people or finding things being wrong all the time, um, and they're not focused on success and things being right, um, that was a big influence on me uh, in my time in the service. And I found the same thing was true in um, uh, government service when I worked at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for many years. I found the same thing true in consulting services for companies I worked for. So there was a mixture of things about people who cared about the right things and did things the right way as opposed to those who didn't. And if we get into the structure of the paradigm a little bit more on, I can talk a little bit more completely about that. But um, it was a uh, it was an interesting thing to see and experience um, people who not only wanted you to do well in in terms of accomplishing the mission and and meeting your expectations and the standards, but people who cared about you. Uh, developing and becoming a better person and a better leader and was willing to do that. Um, one particular time, um, my squadron commander was with us. We were on our submarine. We were out doing weapons testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a uh, series of several days of going out and shooting torpedoes. Um, and there was a process. There was a, um, there was a, a standard method of doing uh, torpedo shoots that was uh, taught in submarine schools and things. But I was on the USS Los Angeles, which was a brand new class of submarine, which had uh, a remarkably better uh, sonar capability, had remarkably better speed, had many, many things about it that were uh, way above the standard uh, uh, submarine capabilities of the past. So we were going out and we had practiced and we learned how we thought was the best way to shoot torpedoes and we were doing it and the people every time we would shoot the torpedoes and we got hits on every exercise we had would come back and would criticize us because we didn't do the things the quote unquote right way. Mm -hmm. Well, after a while I got a little tired of the criticism and um, I turned to my commanding officer and I said, uh, Captain, was there ever a time during this entire exercise where you felt like you didn't have all the information you needed to shoot the weapon? He said, no. And I turned to the guy from the school who outranked me at the time. And I said, well, in that case, the plots and the effort were perfect. And um, the, the guy who was senior to me didn't take kindly to being told that he was wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so he started to get mad. And then my Commodore, who was sitting there watching this whole thing go on, 
uh, and realizing he was in possession of the most potent anti-submarine warfare weapon in the world. Um, and they were having this argument about how, how, how well we were shooting torpedoes. Mm-hmm. He just stood up and said, okay, let's go shoot another one. <laughs> and so in an instant, he recognized the situation and he, we, he, he diffused it and we went off to go and we, we, we passed with flying colors with our, with our test. And as I was walking back to the wardroom after one of the uh, shoots, um, he stopped me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, he said, son, just remember non illegitimatum carborundum, which is a bastardized Italian phrase for don't let the bastards wear you down. <laughs> and so I understood that my, my squadron commander knew that what I was doing was right, mm-hmm. that we were doing good in spite of what somebody else who has, was in a little box that could only think in a little box was able to do. That was an example of how he was able to explain to me that I was okay and I didn't need to worry about the other guy. Um, and so that was, a, that was a big plus for me in my early career. Um, and that's the kind of, kind of leadership where people are interested in, in what I call uh, in the paradigm, one of the sections that's called driving despair out. He could see that despair was creeping into the organization because of the conflict there and he didn't want it. So he was going to get rid of it. And that's one of the things that leaders do is drive despair out. And when we get into details about that, we can talk about that a little more. Well, I'm thinking the details are all to be forthcoming. I, you know, I spent 20 years in the air force. I, I, I didn't do it on a, with your background, but, um, One quick question before we get into your foundations. You know, you, I'm not sure how long you were in the military, uh, but you, particularly in the Navy, it's a very strict regiment and discipline out there. So as you've been teaching leadership um, and learning leadership in the Navy or in the military and teaching and learning leadership out here in the civilian world you know we say those people have no discipline and stuff like that that's what all the military guys say how do you find the difference how do you do your principles hold uh military style uh, out into the civilian world and 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 how do you find leadership different in the there's maybe too many questions you know in the civilian world versus the stuff that you learned or grew up on in the military well first off i want to say uh Thank you for your 20 years of service. My father was a 20-year Air Force uh, veteran. I'm proud to be a brat. Uh, <laughs> for those who don't know what a brat is, that's the child of somebody who's in the who's in the service who follows their father or mother or both uh, everywhere they go. And up, you know, uh, I, one of my favorite jokes I tell people about brats is that there's one question you never ask a brat: Where are you from? <laughs> the brat has no idea no clue <laughs> a brat says well do you mean where was i born or where was my last duty station or which did i like the best or where have i been the longest i i don't have any idea what you're talking about there you go because uh, for brats it's all about who you're around and who you're with uh wherever you are uh so that's one of the things that i i experienced in my life and and i'm proud to call be called a brat um I served uh, nine years in the, in the Navy, uh, another 21 years in federal, uh, uh, another 11 years in federal service. 
Okay. So I had 21 years of total uh, military and federal service and another 15 or 20 years of uh, service in terms of uh, consulting and business in the, in the uh, civilian world. So I found that the leadership issues are pretty much the same everywhere. I think you see more um, authoritarian style in the military because, quite frankly, the consequences of failure can be much more severe. If you're late to getting your product onto the market, uh, you may lose some market share. If you're late getting your uh, weapons downrange, you may be dead. So uh, there is a higher consequence uh, in the military than there is in the civilian world. But I think the issues stay the same. Um, and I have found that in organizations outside the military can be just as uh, bureaucratic and hierarchical and arbitrary as they can be in the military. Uh, one of the old sayings in the military always was hurry up and wait. <laughs> um, you had to rush to get someplace and then you had to stand there and wait for something to be able to get to get done. Well, that's true in the civilian world, too. Um, I don't think there are any fundamental fundamental issues that are different from leadership perspective in the civilian world than the um, uh, military. The difference in the power structure is 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 something that you have to be able to adjust to, because I, I try to make the point that authority and power come with hierarchy. Um, and so when you're in a position in the hierarchy, you're in a position of authority and you're considered to be in a position of leadership, whether you actually are practicing it or not. <laughs> so um, my point is that leadership doesn't have anything to do with what your power or authority is, but it has everything to do with how you should exercise whatever the power and authority you have. So Excellent. it's about how you use your power and your authority uh, to accomplish things and how you deal with people. That is the key, uh, not where you get your power from or what kind of power, whether it's military or civilian or otherwise. So Good. I find that it's pretty much same fundamentally, although differences in style because of the pressures of the immediacy of the, uh, of the consequences can be different. Excellent. Thank you. I think this is a perfect time then to jump right into what those um, qualities are, the, you know, the the three principles that you've you know, come up with uh, for you know, foundational leadership. Well, I think uh, the leadership paradigm uh, picture, which uh, I think you've seen, has uh, three levels to it. Um, the first level is the foundation. Uh, the second level is the challenges. And the third level is the achievement. And uh, it's really a journey uh, from building at the bottom and working your way up to the top. The foundation is something that everybody has to have. Um, when you're building a building, you're building a fence, you're building an organization, you have to have a foundation. You have to have something upon which to build. Um, and I looked around and I said, what are the three things that are most important? as a foundation for being a leader. And I came up with the three that were honesty, courage, and talent. And I think that's pretty self-evident. Uh, you know, you need to have some skill or talent at doing something. You need to be have courage to do the things that you're supposed to do. You need to be honest. But I define honesty a little bit differently than most people do. 
Uh, it's not about whether or not you tell the truth all the time or whether you steal or whether you lie. I mean, that's in the honor code at the Naval Academy, you know, midshipmen will not lie, cheat, or steal. Um, my definition of honesty is to see the world and your situation in it the way that it is. Not the way you want it to be, not the way you think it should be, not the way you think you could make it if the people would get out of the way and let you do it the way you want to do it. You have to do it the way that it is. You have to deal with it the way that it is. And um, Scott Peck wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Mm -hmm. but it's a terrific book. It has a great opening line. Life is hard. And it is. Um, in fact, as uh, somebody once said, uh, life is a terminal disease. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're going to go through a lot of problems, uh-huh. and you've got to learn to live with them. Um, so see, when Scott Peck talks about uh, honesty, he, he describes everybody having a map. From the time you're born all the way through your life, you have a map. And that map consists of all your experiences, all your thoughts, all your observations, all your imaginations, all these things that comprise your world and you in that world. But your map may be different from my map, may be different from anybody else's map because you've had different experiences. You have different situations and you've had different uh, learning uh, opportunities. So your map and my map may not agree everywhere or may not agree at all, but it's important if you're going to have influence with other people and operate with other people that you have some commonality of your map. So that's what I call about the honesty, seeing the world that you're in and your place in it the way that it is. And that involves not only your perception, but other people's perceptions of their world and how their world intersects with yours. That's a really, really critical part of being a leader. If you don't have a good sense of your map, and you, your inability to obtain and observe and, and deal with other people's maps, you're going to have an awfully hard time being a leader uh, because you have to do those things. So seeing it the way that it is is really, really important. The second part is about courage. And I define courage as another set of threes. It's the ability to overcome fear, to take action, to benefit someone else without regard to the cost to yourself. So overcome fear, take action, disregard the cost to yourself. Those are the three things you need to demonstrate courage. And the example I give all the time is one that I think surprises people. Most people, when they think of courage, they think about the guy who jumps on the grenade and saves his squad, Mm -hmm. giving up his life for somebody else. Well, that's certainly courage. Uh, but it's not the most common kind of courage you see. But all forms of courage have those three elements. You have to overcome fear, do something for somebody else, and do it without regard to cost to yourself. So the story I tell in my book is one about my daughter, one of my triplets, who's the most uh, uh, empathic person I know. And when she was going to school uh, early on in first grade, we would pack her lunch before she went to school every day. And every day she'd come home and she hadn't touched a thing in her lunchbox. So we asked her, we said, Jess, how come you're not eating your lunch? Well, I don't have time, Daddy. I said, hmm, that sounds odd. 
So I called her teacher and said, Jess says she doesn't have enough time to eat lunch. And the teacher says, oh, she's got plenty of time. We give them like over 35 minutes to eat lunch. Hmm, that's odd. Could you go check in and see what's happening, why she's not eating her lunch? So she did, and she called us back the next day and told us what happened, and my heart about fell out of my chest. But that afternoon, she came home from school. I opened up her lunch bag, and she hadn't eaten a thing, not a bite. So knowing what had happened, I then asked her, I said, Jess, why didn't you eat your lunch? And she said, uh, I didn't have enough time, Daddy. And at that point, I said, Jess, I think you had enough time to eat your lunch today, didn't you? And she gave, gave me the, uh, you know, that little pouty face with those big brown eyes. And she said, mm-hmm. And I said, turns out there was a kid in her class whose parents were very wealthy. And the mother had quit working when the son was born. And so this kid, first face he saw every morning was mom. The face he interacted with all day long was mom. And the last face he saw before he closed his eyes at night was mom. So he gets to school. It's a little different. There's a lot of kids, so it's kind of fun. And there's a teacher that's kind of the parent figure. So he's all right. But then at lunchtime, they take the kids over to our, a, a different room. They bring out their lunches. They separate them and put them in different seats so they're not you know, sitting right close to each other. They put them in the different seats and they say, sit still, don't talk, eat your lunch. And then the teacher goes out and they, wait, they come back a few minutes later and everybody's finished and they gather up all their lunch boxes and they go back to class. Well, it turns out this kid would sit there at the desk with no other kids sitting next to him and he sees the lunchbox. He sees the lunchbox that mom made for him and mom's not here. And he just goes into separation anxiety and breaks out crying. So my daughter... She's been told to sit still, eat her lunch, and not talk. But she feels like her friend needs help. So she disobeys. She overcomes the fear of disobeying. She gets up. She goes over and she sits down next to this young gentleman and talks to him the whole time during lunch so he'll go eat and won't cry. Then she sees the teacher coming down the hall to gather everybody up. She gets up, runs back over to her desk where she's at, puts her lunch back in her lunchbox, and sit there and waits and go, then comes home. So I said, Jess, you were helping out your friend because he wasn't feeling good, weren't you? And she gave me that same pouty look, you know, like she was afraid she was about to get hit or something. She went, mm-hmm. And I said, Jess, I am so proud of you for helping your friend. It's okay to eat your lunch while you do it. <laughs> so... That one is the one that inspires me because my daughter, without any instruction from me, mm-hmm. decided that she was going to overcome fear. She was going to help somebody else. And she was going to do it without regard to whether or not she got to eat her lunch or not. So that, for me, became my definition of courage. And the reason I point that out is that you can learn an awful lot from children if you just listen. And secondly, I think we do a terrible job of recognizing when people act courageously and encouraging. Mm -hmm. When somebody does something good for somebody else without regard to themselves and they overcome fear to do it, instead of just going, oh, that's nice, and then 
forgetting about it until the next time they forget to tie their shoes or misspell a word on a report or have something in five minutes late and we come all over them, but we don't recognize when they're being courageous. That's a mistake. We need to encourage and develop courage in people because that's fundamental to their ability to lead and to be led. So that's my courage story. My talent story also involves three things. It involves knowledge, skill, and perseverance. You have to know how to do something to be good at it. Then you have to have a skill for it. And you have to persevere to make it the best you can make it. Now, I know how to hit a golf ball. I actually have a little bit of skill of hitting a golf ball. But if I needed to put food on the table because I was going to play golf, my family would starve. <laughs> so I don't have the perseverance and, and the skill come combined to do enough of that. And a lot of people don't rec- recognize this anyway either. And that is the greatest basketball player of all time, according to most people, uh, is not actually LeBron James. It's actually Michael Jordan. But most people don't know this about Michael Jordan. He tried out for the basketball team his freshman year in high school and got cut. He didn't make the varsity. He had to play JV for a year. Well, that didn't sit too well with Michael Jordan. So he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked on his game. And by the time his sophomore year came around, he was the star of the team. Because nobody was going to deny him because he had the knowledge, he had the skills, and he was going to persevere to work and hone and perfect his skills. So that's what you have to have to have talent. Now, the interesting part about that that uh, foundation is that all three of those things are important. Courage is important, honesty is important, and talent is important. But talent is the least important of the three. And the reason is that when the most egregious failures of leadership occur, they almost never occur due to a lack of talent. And I give three examples in the book. Mm-hmm. The first one is Richard Nixon, the only man to resign the presidency of the United States. And he resigned it because he was about to get impeached by the Congress and convicted by the Senate. And he didn't want to go through that. And he didn't want to put the country through that. So he resigned. Mm-hmm. So the question I asked everybody when I mentioned this is, did Richard Nixon resign the presidency because he lacked talent? No. He wouldn't have gotten elected if he uh, didn't have the talent. <laughs> so let's go to let's. Uh, I want to pick on everybody fairly. So I that's a Republican. Now I'll pick on a Democrat. <laughs> so now we'll now we'll move forward a few years uh-huh. to another president who had a crisis in leadership because they did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. He never <laughs> asked anybody to lie for him. And he needs to get do that doing the work of the American people. <laughs> so after the uh, the Lewinsky affair came about, uh, and he dodged a few ashtrays thrown at his head, another interesting thing happened. For the first time in 50 years, both the House and the Senate shifted from Democratic control to both being Republican controlled. First time in 50 years. And... Bill Clinton lost his law license for lying in a court in a deposition. Mm. Uh, the lawyer, who, the, the judge who, uh, who uh, found him guilty of basically perjury in, in a court thing uh, was an appointee that he appointed to the bench. 
So the question I have is, did Bill Clinton lose the House, control of the House and the Senate, and lose his law license because he lacked talent? No. No. And so now to get a little more personal, since I've, I've taken on the Democrats and Republicans, I'll take on a military person. And I'll take on somebody of my own, of my own uh, age. In 1974, at the Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium with Richard Nixon, that's my uh, graduation speaker, I threw my hat up in the air when I graduated. And on the same day, up on the plains of West Point, another cadet threw his hat up in the air. Now, he later went on to become the most successful and well-respected leader and general in the United States Army, uh, was considered the greatest tactical and strategical, strategic uh, leader since MacArthur or Eisenhower or Patton. Uh, later left the military and became the head of the CIA. Of course, uh, for those of you who keep up on that stuff, I'm talking about David Petraeus. Now, as the CIA director, he was in charge of keeping all the secrets, but he had a secret too. The secret was that he was having an affair with his biographer. Now, when you're the head of the nation's most important intelligence secrets, you can't be running around with secrets that if get out in the public would potentially make you suitable for blackmail. So it was released to the public that he was having an affair with his biographer and he had to resign from the CIA and he had to take on the uh, problems that, that caused for his family and his professional career. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a, it was a huge, huge deal. Now, the question I have for you is, did David Petraeus have a crisis of leadership because he lacked talent? I don't think so. Nope, don't think so. And I'll ask you this question. I want you to think of the biggest failure you've ever had in your life. It could be work-related. It could be personally related. Just, I don't want to know what it is. I just want you right now to think of what the biggest failure you've ever had in your life, and I want you to answer this question. Was the biggest failure in your life because you lacked talent? No. no, no, don't think so. So why isn't this taught to anybody? Why isn't this kind of information taught? What we do in businesses and in the military and other things, we give people a job, and if they're really good at it, we promote them. Mm -hmm. If they get further promoted up, we say, okay, now you're a leader. Where did they get this idea about? talent being more important than honesty and courage from us because that's what we do. We promote people based on talent. We don't make any effort to find out whether they understand what they're doing and are honest and how courageous they are. Do they have courage? Are they willing to do the tough thing when it's required? Because that's what leaders are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Make the tough decisions, do the tough things when they're required without regard to the cost of themselves. And since we don't measure that, and we don't monitor that, why are we surprised when people come up into positions of leadership and fail catastrophically? So that's my reason for my emphasis on the foundation in my uh, power of three paradigm. Once you get past that, the, the, the foundation, and here's the thing. The other question I ask people is, uh, I don't know what your, your, your college experiences were or what your uh, what, what was your major in college or your favorite subject in high school? Let's say they were totally different for me. I, I, uh, 
I was really good at math, but I was an English major. <laughs> okay. So you're an English major. I bet you yeah, took so, a course. So my, my talent was in math, but, um, you know, where, where honesty comes in is I had you know, the application of it, and I'm just not good at it. Well, uh, if was, you're an English my reader. talent didn't lie didn't lay in English, but that's you know kind of where I was able to apply you know to actually handle the application and you know get into the communication side. Let me let me ask you this question: yeah. Did you take a course in Shakespeare? No. Really? Did you take a course in uh, I, early, I, early American I, early I American writers? I, I was say I, I took more modern American and European writers. Okay. So you, you studied uh, Melville and Hawthorne and yeah. Mark Twain, people like that. Okay, so in your early American writers course, do you remember what grade you got? No, probably a B or a C. Okay. What about you, Calvin? Uh, well, I didn't go to college. I came out of the Air Force. But <laughs> um, what was your favorite subject in high school? Uh, oh, uh, probably. Hmm. That's a good question. I know I went to high school. Hold on. <laughs> Probably French at the time. <laughs> okay. That's good. Uh, matter of fact, the first school I ever went to in my life was a kindergarten in France when my father was stationed at Lone Air Force Base outside of uh, Reims in France. Uh-huh. So uh, I, I learned to speak a little uh, French when I was going to it. It was a French school, so I was in with all my French friends. Uh, I'm really good with Ue la Bibliothèque. That's that's kind of my <laughs> kind of my thing right there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the, so so you 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 like French. So you yep. how many years of French did you take? Uh, just, two. just two. Yeah. What grades did you get in your French class? I have no recollection of what I got in that class. Okay. None, none Most people me. have some idea what they got in their majors or their favorite subjects. But let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. What did you get in your uh, in your honesty one on one final exam? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I took that test. <laughs> oh, okay, well maybe you got a, maybe you remember the grade you got on your uh, capstone project and courage class. Nope, nope, don't remember that one either. <laughs> ah, geez. Well, maybe that's the reason why we have all these people who have weak foundations because we don't teach it, we don't preach it. We don't measure it. We don't care much about it. What we care about is, did you meet your sales goals? Did you make your formation and, and, and make your deployment on time? Did you do these other things? So my point being is we have a fundamental disconnect between what's needed in leadership and what we do in training people to be leaders. Um, and that's, that's something I think is, 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 at least ways to me, is really, really evident. Uh, in most of the places with, with, with leadership. So when you go and ask somebody, if, uh, for example, if I ask somebody who's a mechanical engineer what they got in their statics and dynamics class, they'll tell me. If I ask somebody who's a, uh, who's a mathematics uh, uh, major what they got in, in complex variables, they can tell me. Mm-hmm. If I ask somebody usually who's an English major or what they got in their Shakespeare class or in their early American writers class, they can usually tell me. But almost nobody can ever tell me what they got on their honesty 101 exam or on their capstone uh, courage project because they didn't have one. And that, I think, is one of the most important parts that I've come to understand in leadership. Um, and when I go back and look at the cases of bad leadership or poor leadership that I've experienced, mm-hmm. 
almost always in, in that area of either not seeing the world the way that it is or not having the courage to do the right things. Um, it's, a, I, I, I never had any people I work with who are leaders that suffer from um, incompetence in terms of talent. I never had, never had. Wow. So that's, that's something I, that really sticks with me a lot. Um, the next, uh, the next area I wanted to talk about was, okay, if you have a foundation, what is the next thing that leaders do? Well, leaders deal with challenges because if there were no challenges, there'd be no need for leaders. You know, <laughs> it's kind of the idea that, oh, there's all these problems in the world. Well, if there was no problems, none of us would have jobs. Right. So the challenges are important. And then so I started looking at challenges and they kind of fell into three general categories. The first one is missed expectations. The second one is ethical moral conflicts. And the third one is uh, what I describe as dis driving despair out. So let's look at those pretty quickly. Um, the unmet expectations are probably what 99% of the issues that you end up dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Somebody expects somebody to do something and it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So naturally the question is why? Why? Yeah. Well, there's only three reasons things don't happen. Somebody doesn't know what to do. Somebody doesn't know how to do it or somebody doesn't want to do it. That's the only three reasons why things don't get done. Mm -hmm. There aren't any more. That covers them all. Now here's the dirty little secret. If you're a leader, you're responsible for both what and how. The person who's got the directive to do something, they're responsible for the wanna. So the problem that comes in most cases of missed expectations and the anguish that it, that it invariably occurs, usually you'll hear something like this. What? This report was late? Jeez, can't Joe do anything on time? So the first impulse is to go right down to wanna. What's the matter with him? Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely the last place you should go as a leader. The first place you should go from a leader is, did I make it clear what was needed? Not only just what generally, but what specifically was needed. Did I make it clear? Then if it was clear, did the person know how to do it? And in order to know how, you not only have to do you know, how to turn the wrench or how to put the card in the, in the computer or, or how to type in the instructions or how to write the program or whatever. Not only do you have to know how, you have to have the time, mm -hmm. you have to have the resources, you have to have the, the training, you have to have the support. All those things are necessary in order to be able to do it because that's what it takes. That's how you get things done. And the next thing, so that question for the leader is, have I given this person every opportunity to succeed? Have I give, made sure they had the training? Have I made sure they know how to do the work? Have I given them the tools? Have I given them the money? Have I given them the time? If it's not, then it's not their fault. It's mine. I'm the leader. I'm supposed to make sure that happens. And then if a person knows exactly what to do, is competent and capable and knows how to do it, and has the resources necessary to get it done, then the only reason it can be done left for not doing it is because they didn't want it. And that's on them. And that's the only one that's on them. Leaders, I hear some people as leaders say things like, 
well, my job isn't to tell people how to do things. My job is just to tell them what needs to be done, and it's up to them to figure it out. Here's your sign. <laughs> okay? I'm sorry. If, okay, yeah. if, you don't, if you don't know that they know how to do it, yep. and you're giving them a task, you're setting them up to fail. Mm-hmm. Setting people up to fail is not what leaders are supposed to do. Leaders are supposed to help people do things more than they could do on their own. So that's my issue with, with leadership from an expectation standpoint. The next one is the conflict standpoint. Um, and when you have an ethical conflict, unfortunately, it's a situation where everybody loses. Mm-hmm. What you do get to do as a leader and as an individual is choose which path you're going to take that has the least negative impact and consequences that you can live with. So there are three things you can do when you're faced with an ethical conflict. Uh, one of the things that I have in my book is a picture that was taken by a, an Army sergeant who was working for the uh, uh, public affairs office or whatever in, in Vietnam. And um, the picture is now world famous. It was p- published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It's called Bodies on the Path. Mm. And it was taken right outside of the village of My Lai. And for those of us who are old enough to remember what My Lai was, uh, that was right after the Tet Offensive. And uh, the army was wiping out the rest of the NVA and Viet Cong who had taken over on the Tet Offensive and pushing them back into North Vietnam. And one of the platoons was tasked to do this was headed by a lieutenant named William Calley. And he claims that he was told to go waste the village. And so he went there and started killing everybody in the village. Men, old men, women, children, didn't matter. Finally, a, uh, a helicopter pilot saw what was going on, landed his helicopter between the American troops and the villagers, and told the guys with the machine guns on his uh, doors of his helicopter, he said, if anybody goes and makes a move towards me or any of these other people, shoot them. And then eventually they got the operation stopped, and then the whole drama with the trials and the investigations came uh, for that, and that was one of the turning points in the Vietnam War was all the coverage of the My Lai massacre. Mm. So there are three things you can do when you're faced with a conflict. You can... Fix the problem. That's often pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. You can accept the problem because you can't fix it. Or you can leave the problem say, I, hey, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. Those are the three things you can do. And as a matter of fact, those are the three things that are generated in the serenity prayer, which came out of Germany in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the time of, uh, of, of the Holocaust. Uh, the serenity prayer goes, God grant me the courage to change the things that I can, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so that's kind of where that, those three things came from. Mm. There's one other option in the conflicts. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what this other option is. And I, instantaneously, I guarantee you, you're going to think of an individual, and you're going to be able to put a name to the individual, and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about even though I don't know any of these people in your lives. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's a person who's in the conflict when the situation isn't right, and that person doesn't fix it. They don't accept the consequences, and they won't leave. So what do they do? They just hang around and bitch about it. Now, I know 
from the looks on your faces that you know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> the problem with that is, is that if you don't fix things and you don't accept them and you don't leave them, mm -hmm. you are a cancer to yourself and you're a cancer to the organization that you're in. And there's only one cure for cancer. You've got to cut it out. So when you have ethical conflicts, every choice you make, either fix it, accept it, or leave it, is going to come with negative impact on you. And you're going to have to be able to choose and live with whatever choice you end up making. But it's going to suck either way. Uh, but one thing you can't do is you can't not fix it, not accept it, not leave it and hang around and bitch about it. That just yeah. ruins things for everybody. So that's the, uh, that's the thing here. I, my wife just, I, pardon me for saying my wife is now letting the dog out. So <laughs> she just came home. All right. Oh. So the, uh, um, that's the issue with conflict. Um, the next thing I, I move to, and I, this is what I think is the most important this is the single most important thing that leaders do. And I always ask the question to people, what's the opposite of love? And most people will say, hate is the opposite of love. It's indifference. It's not. It's not. Because here's the thing. I'll give you my definition of love. Okay. Love is an overwhelming emotion that compels you to act towards the benefit of somebody else. That's what love is. You feel compelled to do things for the benefit of someone else. Mm -hmm. That's love. Well, hate is very similar. It's an overwhelming emotion that compels you to act towards others, not for their benefit, but for their detriment. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, hate is kind of like love, but it's just the difference is the result. So to get the point across, because I was a math major in, uh, in, in, in college, um, I give the example. If you take the numbers two and three and you add them, you get five. If you multiply them, you get six. Does that make multiplication the opposite of addition because the result came out different? <laughs> uh, no. No? Okay. The opposite of addition is subtraction. And a matter of fact, multiplication is just multiple addition. <laughs> if you think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so if we want to have the definition of what's the opposite of love, we have to think about the definition of love, an overwhelming emotion that compels action towards others. Well, what is an overwhelming emotion that either compels inaction or prevents action? that prevents you from acting towards other people for their benefit or their detriment. Something that just says you can't act. Fear. Close. It's despair. Despair is nothing matters anymore. My soul has been, it's a shutdown button on your soul. And everybody, myself, and I'm sure you as well, have experienced despair at one time or another. Something really, really awful happened to you or happened to somebody you care about or something terrible happened, uh, a flood, a tornado, a hurricane, a car wreck, something. Everybody has experienced despair. But when you're in despair, you can't lead. You can't even follow worth a darn because you're compelled not 
to act. So for a leader, the essence of leadership is people working together. If you're in despair, you can't lead. And if they're in despair, they can't follow. So the most critical challenge, in my opinion, for leaders is to drive despair out. That means you have to start with yourself. Everybody has a morning when you get up and you go, God, I do not want to go to work today. I don't want to deal with this. You know, that's despair. You have to, you have to say, I am not going to allow myself to be in despair because it prevents me from being a good leader. Then when you get past that and you go to try to interact with people and work with them, you have to see when they're in despair. It could be from something completely not related to your job or your work or your organization. It could be some personal issue or it could be related to your work. You, somebody can be causing them to do extra work that they don't need to do and diverting them from doing what they want to do and need to do. And those kinds of things generate despair. When people say, oh, I can't ever get anything done. You know, I need something from supply and I can't get it from them because those idiots won't give them to me. You know, you have this kind of despair. If you're a leader, you have to drive despair out in order to have the best opportunity for your organization or your group to function successfully. Driving despair out is critical. That's what my squadron commander did for me. As I told you that story earlier, um, he saw the despair was taking over the interaction and said, I've got to stop this. I'm going to drive despair out. And he did. Um, other people I work with in the Navy who were senior me in, in situations had no problem with creating despair in somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as long as they didn't have to create despair in their own life or somebody wasn't creating problems that they de you know, determined to be despair for themselves. So driving despair out is critical for, for meeting the challenges of leadership. Then once you get past the challenge stage, you get the opportunity to be in the achievement stage. And the achievement stage of leadership is defined by an acronym. You know, I'm, I'm a Navy guy, and uh, I'm sure as an, you're an Air Force guy, you know all the different, all the different uh, yeah. <laughs> acronyms, like, like TDY, uh, BEQ, uh, all those yeah. kinds of things like that. Uh, this is my, my father once told me, uh, TDY, that means temporary duty yonder. <laughs> uh, that's it. Uh, so yeah, I had to come up with an acronym. Uh, we used to we used to joke in the Navy about all the abbreviations we had in the nuclear power uh, business. We, we had to go follow what they meant, and we'd look in the Dick Nucab, was the oh, wow. dictionary of nuclear <laughs> abbreviation. <laughs> so I came up with a with an acronym, and it's AID, A I D, because that really is what you do when you're trying to help people achieve. A is for assist. You help people do the things that they need to do. Because if you could do it all yourself, you wouldn't need followers, so you wouldn't need to assist anybody. Right. But you do have followers. You can't do it all yourself. So the leadership achievement area is to help other people do what they need to do. The next one is inspire. People have to feel like what they're doing is worthwhile and useful and that you have an opportunity to do something that's bigger than just yourself. And that's where the inspire part comes in. Mm. And inspire comes in two different groups. There is aspirational inspiration, which is look at what we're going to do when we get finished. 
It's here's where we're going. And then there's confirmational inspiration, which is almost and probably more important because it says not only look at the great things we're trying to do, but it says, hey, we're at a step here. We're not there yet, but we're at this step here, and you did a great job getting us here. So now we have an easier path to get to where we want to be. So the confirmational aspect is something that goes disregarded by so many people in leadership. You've got to show appreciation for the accomplishments of people on the way to meeting the aspirational goal. Um, and that's a really important piece of, of, of inspiration. And the last part that I think leaders are typically, people in positions of leadership are typically the worst at is depend. D. D is for depend. You got to depend on other people to do things mm. because you can't do them all. But here's the, here's the dirty little secret. Human nature is we like being praised for what we do that's good. Mm -hmm. We don't like being blamed for things that doesn't go right. Mm -hmm. So how many times we hear leaders, you know, take credit for the things that the group did? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did this. I accomplished that. <laughs> I accomplished this. You see it on their resume, whatever. Uh, it's always I. Well, leaders, good leaders aren't I people. They're we people. We accomplished. You know, I was able to make this happen because I had a great team. They accomplished uh, lots of things that I couldn't possibly have done. You're getting credit for things you didn't do, even though you don't deserve it. You're also, as a leader, you're going to get blame for things you didn't do either. Mm-hmm that you couldn't control, that somebody else messed up. If you're not willing to accept the blame as well as the credit, you've got no business being a leader. So the human nature part is, since people hate being blamed, they feel the urge, the compulsion to get in there and control everything that's happening <laughs> so that if anything goes wrong, it will be my fault. But I'm not going to let anybody else screw up because I'm not going to let it happen to me that somebody else screws up and I get the blame. Yeah. So you hear this from leaders all the time when something bad happens. I take full responsibility, comma, but, and then a <laughs> list of all the reasons why it's not their fault. Okay. So when you, whenever, you, whenever you hear that pause with the comma, but, mm -hmm. you know, you've got a bad leader on your hands. Uh, the good leader says, I'm responsible for the uh, operation of this unit. We didn't meet our objectives. We failed. And I am going to go about fixing the problem. There's the difference. Leaders fix problems. Leaders don't fix blame. And that's the issue about accountability that a lot of leaders don't get. You've got to depend on people to do things, but you have to accept the fact that you're going to be blamed when you didn't do the thing that was wrong. Somebody else may have screwed up, or maybe you did. But either way, you have to accept the responsibility for the fact that it occurred and that your responsibility is to fix the problem. And that is the area in the achievement level that I think is most poorly done by leaders today is getting them to understand that they're responsible. You can delegate authority, but you can't delegate responsibility. And that's something, you know, that, that uh, needs to be learned early and needs to be practiced. 
And when people come up and say, okay, the report didn't get out the way on time, that's my fault. I'm going to take responsibility for fixing the problem. I'm going to get that report out as soon as possible, and I'm going to take steps to make sure that we have something in place so the next time we have a, a critical report due, it gets out at the proper time. That's what leaders do. Um, and that's the, that's the, the essence of that. So that's the thing I find in each area that is the most important. I find that talent's the least important in the foundation. Driving to spare out is the most important in the challenges and depending on people and accepting that responsibility when you don't have complete control is the most important part in the achievement area. Uh, and all of those are areas that I've taken a lot of leadership courses over my time in the Navy and the federal service. Um, I took the week long leadership uh, management course at the, at the, from OPM. I am a graduate of the federal executive institutes, uh, leadership for a democratic society, which is a month long onsite, uh, program done down at the, uh, in Charlottesville that the, where the university of Virginia is. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of these different things, but I never had these things spelled out the way that they're done in the paradigm, the power three paradigm in the picture. And I often uh, go to people and say, show me what your philosophy of leadership is. And they go, they mumble, they say a few platitudes. And so can you draw me a picture of it? And they can't. Hmm. Um, a company I used to work for years ago before there was email and, uh, uh, all the other nice things we do today, we could go in and do uh, management audits with the people. And we'd go to the, the boss of the company and we'd say, tell us the three or four most important things that everybody needs to be concentrating on in the organization. And they had no problems telling us what those were. Mm-hmm. They had, they're crystal clear. we write them down. But thank you. we leave their office. And after the boss left that day, we go over to the secretary we say, I want you to pull everything out of your files that the boss put his signature on the last 30 days. Then we would go around the offices after everybody else had left, and we'd take a picture of everything that was on every bulletin board in the offices. And we'd come back the next day and go to the leader and said, this is what's important, right? Yeah. Well, here's what you personally signed and dealt with in the last 30 days. And there's 27 of them here. And only two of them have anything to do with the three things you said were most important. So my question is, why are you dealing with the other 25 things? You're distracted. And there we go. Hmm. It was really a shock to them. I said, oh, and by the way, here's what your bulletin board says is important to you, to your people. What are your bulletin boards say? And then look at it and you get this kind of like doggy, sad doggy face, bad dog uh, look on her face and they go, holy cow. And that stuck with me over the years. And that's when I was making the, the power three paradigm. These are the things that you have to have them down someplace and say, these are what's important. And you have to follow through and do the things that are most important. Because if you're doing other things, you're distracted from the important stuff. You're not being a good leader. You have to stay focused on what's important. And you have to let the unimportant things go, or you have to let somebody else deal with them rather than yourself. Uh, and so that's why the depend part is so important, being able to understand what's important. Being able to make those expectations clear for what and the how, which belong to the leader, 
Mm-hmm. And then being able to, down in the foundation, being able to see the world the way that it is, not the way you want it to be, not the way it could be or should be, but the way that it is, are the ones that I think are the most efficient what I see in poor leaders. The good leaders do that, whether they do that just because they're lucky or good or just had some training or had some experiences that emphasize those for them. But why should we have to be at the mercy of whether or not you happen to get into a good situation or a bad situation in your first few jobs in order for you to be able to get the kind of attention you need to become a better leader? Why can't we go out and talk about these things and make them better understood? That's that's what my goal is, to talk to as many people as I can get to listen to me um, and uh, hopefully help them see that there is a better way to understand what leadership is and to participate in it and make it happen. Um, one of my uh, favorite things about driving to spare out, Simon Sinek said on a, uh, uh, on a uh, podcast that I watched, he was making a presentation to a group of Marines and he was talking about his philosophies and things. And there was one Marine uh, captain or major in the group that was just challenging him on everything he said. He was very kind of disrespectful and disdainful and disruptive uh, of, the, of the speech. And, and Senek saw this was happening and he just kept plowing along. And at the end, the, the commanding officer of the unit came up to Senek afterwards and said, said, um, I'm really sorry for that you had to experience that. that. That shouldn't have happened that way. And I'm going to go take care of it. And Cynic said, okay, uh, General, but I need you to do one favor for me. He said, what's that? And he says, when you go up and talk to the major, I want you to ask him a question. So what's that? He said, said, just ask him, are you okay? How's things going? And it turns out the general was a little shocked. And so Simon went with the general and said, hey, you know, I know she had a lot of things to say about the presentation. So I, I just had a question. Are, is everything okay? Are you all right? And it turns out the guy wasn't all right. He was having problems. Um, and so he was frustrations were building up. He was having his despair moments and he was letting them out. Um, and so that, that, that was something that stuck with me that Simon Sinek did was recognizing that Although he, I have never seen Simon Sinek's books talk about despair and driving despair out as a key factor of leadership uh, in kind of in the overt way that I do it, but he practiced it. And I thought, that's something that needs to be capped. That's the kind of thing that needs to be done. Yeah, sometimes you just don't know who's having a bad day. Uh, I, I had an experience myself back in the Navy that I talk about a lot about this, and I didn't really appreciate it at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but I do now. At 2.30 in the morning, I was asleep. The phone rang. I sleep pretty hard, so I didn't, I didn't hear the phone ring, but my, my wife did. And she picked up the phone. She said, it's for you. And I went, hello? Mr. Mays? Yes, Mr. Mays. Mr. Mays, this is, and God gave me his name. And I said, I said, hey, man, what's up? He goes, I'm going to kill my wife. Well, that will wake you up at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you don't have time to go flipping through 300 pages of leadership book to find out what you're supposed to do next. You have to be able to know. And so what I didn't know at the time, but I fortunately reacted this way, this guy's in despair. This guy's in trouble. 
And he called me because he's in trouble. So I said, so I, I said what, what's going on? So he had been let out early from duty that day because he was supposed to be on duty all night. So he got let, let we didn't need him on the crew that night. He went home early. And when he got home, his wife wasn't by herself. So he went out and got drunk and decided the thing to do is go back and shoot his wife. So I said, okay, you're not going to shoot anybody. That's not going to happen. Have you been drinking? Yeah, a little bit. So, all right, here's what I want you to do. Get in the cab, go to the boat. I'll meet you there. I said, I don't have any money for the cab. I said, I don't care about the money for the cab. You tell the cab that your lieutenant's coming and he's going to have your money. So I then hung up the phone and called the guy's chief petty officer. I said, meet me at the boat. This guy's in trouble. So we went to the boat. Cab pulled up about the same time I got there. The chief was already there. They paid the cab. We took the guy down in the ship. We stuck him in his, we, we stuck, we stuck him in his bunk. We pulled the curtains on his bunk and we told everybody didn't think, do not get this guy up for quarters in the morning. When quarters comes around in the morning, leave him in his rack. So after quarters, we got him up. We filled him full of coffee, gave him a bunch of aspirin or Tylenol or whatever it was to get his head from throbbing and started to talk to him about what had happened and what was going on. So that was a case where I could sense the guy was in despair and I had to act to do something to help him out. Turns out this guy was one of the best operators, uh, best machinist mates I'd ever had in my command was a superb. He was a submarines have a piece of equipment called the oxygen generator because people need to breathe when they're down in the submarine. So they make their own <laughs> oxygen. We make our own oxygen in submarines. And uh, they do it by electrolysis of water, and it's at high pressure, and it's a very delicate machine. And so, because it produces both oxygen and hydrogen, the hydrogen you normally just pump overboard, the oxygen you store in a storage tank for breathing later. But if oxygen and hydrogen get mixed up together, they tend to explode. That's why this device was called this. This device was called um, uh, laughingly, and the ships were referred to as the bomb. Uh, it wasn't the torpedoes weren't referred to as the bomb. It was the oxygen generator that people were worried about. So this guy was my oxygen generator operator, and he was the best I'd ever seen at it. And he was terrific at it. And he did everything else in his jobs that he ever did for me in a marvelous way. Um, but had I not, had he not called me because he was just in despair and looking for help, and had I not responded to help him, um, who knows what would have happened. Well, I know that had I not done that, I would have lost a great sailor. Um, and uh, that would have been a, a extreme tragedy in my book. So I was fortunate enough to, even in my delirium of being asleep, <laughs> to wake up and say, I know what situation I'm in right now. I need to act right now to help this guy out. Um, so those kinds of things from my personal experiences helped me understand the importance of things like honesty and driving despair out um, from experiences that I've had. And I want other people to be able to have the ability to do the same thing for others because um, Lord knows I can't be in all those leadership positions. <laughs> I'm too old for that stuff, <laughs> but uh, uh, I can help people who want to learn. And I, we got to start teaching this to people 
when they're younger, not after they've become set in their ways or 35 years old and are really good at doing one particular type of task and say, okay, you're a leader now, go off and lead people. Uh, that's a, this is a horrible disservice to everybody. Um, and it's not, it's not good for anybody around in any case. So I'm trying to make a difference in that area. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm about. Awesome. Um, well, I did want to circle back to one thing, um, if you don't mind. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and, and this kind of – yeah, I, I'm actually glad you told that story because otherwise we're going to rewind this 45 minutes and roll back. But you know, yeah, not waking the sailor up in the morning, and you, you mentioned when you told us about your daughter Jess at lunch, uh, those stories have in common that – that you're breaking rules, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk for a minute about how we kind of get stuck in just a, yeah, especially you're talking about, you know, bureaucracies in, in the U S government and the military, but also companies have these like mm-hmm. big long lists of procedures. And I, my guess is that a lot of um, those companies that you go into that, uh, say something's important. They say results are important, but their boards are all full of procedures. Um, <laughs> you know, can you talk for a little bit about um, the role rules, but more specifically rule breaking plays in, in building good leaders? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's important to understand rules because rules are generally put together to help people do things better. And if you find yourself in a situation where the rules aren't making you, allowing you to do things better, then you come upon a dilemma. Do I, do I just say, oh, I just did what the rules told me to do? Or do you say, I need my purpose here is to do something right or do something better? Um, that's in the case where if you find that, uh, the example I give in the book is it's real simple. I tell people, all the time. If you want to read a good leadership book, read Aesop's Fables. Mm-hmm. Because there you'll find stories like The Emperor's New Clothes. If you remember the story of The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, he had none. The people were, 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 were scamming him and he was naked. But it took a little kid to come up and say, look, the emperor has no clothes on. Because mm-hmm. he, had, he was guileless. He was innocent and he didn't have any malicious intent. He said, look, the emperor has no clothes on. So, but when you you're one of the peons and you see the emperor has new clothes on, you have to decide how you're going to act. Remember, fix it, accept it, or leave it. Most people will accept it. Uh, most people won't leave it because it's too hard because I have to move my house and move my thing. Uh, or you can try to fix it. And when you talk about rule breaking in that sense, you're trying to fix it. Um, and I think that's important. You have to keep in mind, back to the honesty question, knowing what the intent and the purpose of the rules are. Um, I give two examples of this in the book. Uh, one is a section I call malicious compliance, where things are getting bad. Uh, the leadership and the bureaucracy isn't dealing with them. Uh, and finally, people get fed up. So what they do is they do what I refer to as malicious compliance. Just exactly what you're They do exactly what you tell me to do, nothing more. And if you want it done any other way, then they're not going to do it because that's not in compliance with the rules, blah, blah, blah. And I actually was, was, had that happen to me at one point. Uh, well, it didn't happen to me. I was in a situation where that was happening. Um, 
And it didn't take very long for the malicious compliance to uh, adversely affect the operation of the outfit. Uh, and then when the uh, leaders, quote unquote, leaders came in to try to fix it, uh, the malicious compliance guy said, no, 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 you don't have the authority to do that. You have to go to so-and-so and such and such and tell them that you need, you screwed this up and you need to make this fix and change. And it was like, oh God, you know, then so and now everybody's tension is up. Everybody's getting their despair levels up. It was not a good thing. It eventually got the problems fixed, but when they got fixed, there was this period that was totally lost. You could never get that back. And you always had that lingering feeling as you went forward that you couldn't trust the next person when the next situation came up. So that's an important thing. You have to be able, I think, to judge and you have to be willing to, to accept the consequences of your action to say, if I'm not going to follow the rules here, here's why I'm not going to follow the rules. I kind of did that with that example with the, uh, with the uh, uh, weapons shoots with the, my, the squadron officer. We weren't following the quote unquote rules. We were doing what was right. Um, and I was validated in that particular case. Um, another case uh, where I had a situation like that was another case in the Navy. I had a, a, a set of particularly important equipment on a submarine, which is a thing that takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere so that you don't you don't die. Um, both of my machines both of my machines died because their fan belts fell apart. They have a motor with a fan belt on them. So I put it to the supply officer. He didn't have any spare parts. We were in port, so we didn't have to go anywhere for a while. So I said, here, you need to get me these parts because in two weeks we have to get away again. Well, having had experience with the supply system, I didn't trust it. <laughs> so that afternoon, when we first came into port, um, two people from my uh, division, went. Uh, we were in Italy in near uh, Sardinia went over to the local Fiat dealer, took the broken fan belts and says, you got anything this size? <laughs> and they found, found fan belts that weren't exactly right, but they were close enough that they'd work. And I bought, had them buy, I, I gave them the money and then we bought four of them. We had two machines in case one of them broke, I wanted to have, and we only needed one machine to work. So we had four fan belts. So the day we were supposed to, uh, get underway, my commanding officer came down to me and said, uh, I need to send the message out saying we've uh, got our, we've got our, uh, our CO2 scrubbers fixed so we can get underway. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Captain, I haven't gotten the parts from the supply yet. He says, well, why not? I said, well, I don't know. You'll have to ask the supply officer. So he calls the supply officer in. He doesn't know where the parts are. We, we ordered them two weeks earlier. So, I mean, you could, you could make a brand new fan belt from any place in the world and ship it to us in less than two weeks <laughs> if you wanted to. But it wasn't happening because they were all following the rules of the supply system and it wasn't making it happen. And so the captain was really getting upset because if he doesn't get underway when he's supposed to. That's a big ding on his career. So I went back down to the wardroom and I came back up a little bit later and I had a message for the captain to authorize to send out that said, our casualty report on the uh, um, scrubbers was fixed. And he says, oh, supply got you your belts. I said, Captain, don't ask me any questions you don't want the answers to. <laughs> yep. And it looked at me kind of funny. And, and uh, so he said, okay. And so we got underway. Supply did not get us any fan belts. 
and I'm up on the bridge on the submarine. We're driving down between Sicily and um, and Italy through the Straits of Messina. The captain turns to me and he says, "I can't wait. Wait anymore. I can't wait more. How did you get the fan belts?" And I told him, I said, I didn't trust the supply officer to do it. And I gave it to him and I checked with him regularly to see if he was getting any progress. And he wasn't. Uh, but uh, the, the first day I went out, I went out and bought some fan belts over at the Fiat dealer. And uh, he said, oh, I see. <laughs> and uh, rather than say, good job, Steve, he just said, oh, I see. So he, he, he was like, the, so that was the end of that. Um, so I had done a good thing for him and for the ship and I got no credit. So then the supply officer comes by my stateroom after I get off watch. He says, uh, captain says you've got, uh, uh, you've got uh, a couple extra fan belts. I said, yes, I do. And he says, well, where are they? I need to put them in the system. I said, you can't have them. He said, well, where are they? I says, I'm not, not telling you. <laughs> so I can find them. I said, no, you can't. <laughs> And I said, I if you want to put fan belts in your system, get them from the supply system and put them in your system. But I'm going to have these two fan belts, and I'm going to pass them on to the next guy who relieves me of this job. Just make sure that we always have these fan belts for this particular piece of equipment, because it's really important that the carbon dioxide level doesn't get too high in your submarine, because <laughs> um, it's a closed tube. Um, so uh, I, I, I chose at that point to go outside the system to make sure the ship could meet its function, um, even though the supply system couldn't, didn't seem to work. Because to me, it was more important that we get underway and do our mission than it was that the supply system worked the way it was so supposedly designed to. Um, so I, there were certain things like that that I just made those decisions on my own because I thought they were the right thing to do. Now. I had to be so, prepared. So what made you get out of the Navy at nine years? Because they found out about those fan belts. <laughs> uh, they didn't. Uh, well, I, I, in reality, in reality, the, the despair aspect of, of, of spending long hours working very, very hard uh, uh, and doing some amazing things uh, to, in terms of productivity on the work and preventing accidents from happening and things and getting no credit for it, but having every time a shoelace was untied, something getting jumped on for the yep. despair level was getting to the point where I just had my first daughter. Uh, and I was just like, no, this it, not being around my children and, and having to deal with this was not what, not what I wanted to do. So I said, no, Absolutely. I don't, I don't need this. And uh, I, I mean, you can you can be willing to sacrifice certain personal things mm -hmm. for a greater a greater good and mm -hmm. the appreciation and it doesn't take much appreciation just a little bit of, of, of that but when you don't get it it becomes not worth it anymore right and that's that was the real reason I got out because it wasn't worth it anymore there's an old joke there's an old joke in the submarine force uh, submarines are designated SSN uh -huh. or SSBN the SS stands for submarines, the N stands for nuclear, and B is for ballistic missile submarines. So we have two types. We have attack submarines, which are SSNs. Uh -huh. We have ballistic missile submarines, which are just basically floating floating missile silos that go out and hide in the ocean. Those are SSBNs. The joke in the attack submarine force was that SSN stood for Saturdays, Sundays, and nights. <laughs> uh, but the people who did attack submarine work loved it. Uh, 
and we're willing to do Saturdays and Sundays and occasional nights in order to be able to do the things that they were doing because they were important and were vital and we like doing them. Uh, but when it gets to the point where despair is creeping in and there's nobody tra- nobody helping you drive the despair out, time it's go. time to leave. It's time to leave. Time to go. Yeah, so that's what I did. Excellent. But that's a, that's another reason why I wanted to write the book is uh, is I want to be able to make 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 it possible for people to see the kinds of things that they do, and if nothing else, have a have a pictorial checklist that you can sit there and say every day, what did I do today to aid, inspire, and depend on people? What did I do today that involved unmet expectations, and was I putting the what and the how on somebody else, or was I taking responsibility for that? Did I drive despair out today as much as I could? Was I avoiding the conflicts or making the right choices? Am I seeing the world the way that it is? Am I being honest about what my situation is? Am I willing to do the things that need to be done, even if it's going to cost me a little bit with my boss or somebody else? Um, those are things, once you have them in a little picture that's mm-hmm. pretty simple to see, and, you can, and you're willing to go and have the discipline to spend some time asking yourself and being self-aware um, and have enough humility to ask the question of yourself, am I doing a good job here? Then you have the opportunity to be a better leader. Um, and when you have that, um, uh, it's amazing things happen. I had a, a great uh, chief petty officer when I was on the Los Angeles um, who uh, took really good care of me and helped me a great deal with my leadership. Um, and uh, it was a guy to this day, every time I fly through Denver, I stop and give him a call and talk to him because he was a tremendous leader um, and he helped the division that I had was in, ostensibly in charge of. I, I called and brought him in the first day. I said, look, you're the, you're the guy who's making this division run, not me. I said, I will pass down the stuff that I'm getting from the bosses to let you know what's expected. And I expect you to let me know what's going on so I don't get surprised by them. But other than that, I need you to lead this group and uh, I may ask you questions. I may not understand everything you're doing, but I'm going to ask you to lead the group and I will back you up. Um, and uh, it turned out to be the best relationship I had of any of the people um, I had in the service. And I'm eternally grateful for this gentleman uh, for all the help he gave me when I was uh, struggling in my starts of my leadership career. Um, I have a funny story about that. I'll share with you too. <laughs> One day, one day I got a I got a notification from the officer of the deck that one of my pieces of equipment was 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 broken, and so I got out of my rack, and I headed up to the space where the equipment uh, was was located, and I go into this this place and I see my chief petty officer, and I see a toolbox, a tech manual, a set of blue dungarees, pants you know, uh, stinging out from the aisle because the box was next to the, on the floor and a pair of khaki pants. I went, hmm, that's weird. And I looked, I kind of says, I walked into the door and my chief looked up to me and without saying a word, he just mouthed the following to me. <laughs> and I walked around the corner and there I saw my commanding officer with a screwdriver in his hand. I looked at the chief and I said, okay. And I said, Captain, executive officer needs to see you, sir. Oh, okay. He puts the screwdriver down. He gets up and he starts to walk out the door. And as he's walking out the door to the room, I turned to my chief and I looked at my chief and I went, 
<laughs> and my chief shakes his head. I close the door and then I hear click. And I'm right next to the executive officer's stateroom. And he said, the cabin says, XO, you need to see me. And I'm, he's taller than I am. So I'm jumping up from behind him, shaking my head. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the executive officer always has something for the captain. I mean, that's just a given. And he goes, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I need you to look at this. And he handed him some paperwork and captain runs off to his cabin to, to, to look at what the XO just gave him. And the, exec, the executive officer looks at me and goes, what the heck was that all about? And I said, damn it, XO. He had a screwdriver in his hand again. Would you tell him to stay the hell out of my gear? That's why I have a chief and a petty officer. <laughs> so looks at me, looks at me, and he gives me this kind of wry, wry grin. He goes, I'll try. <laughs> so, I mean, the, that was the relationship I had with my chief petty officer because uh, it, it was terrific because he knew that I was going to let him do his job. Right. Um, and he knew that if he needed something, I would do whatever I could do to help him do his job. And then when it was done, he was going to help get the, get the equipment fixed. And basically, he, he could have fixed the problem in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But he had a, 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 an, e, an E4 petty officer who had not worked on this piece of equipment much, but he wanted him to learn how to be responsible for it. So he had the tech to, tool manual, tech 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 manual, the toolbox, everything right. else. So he could have the guy walk through the process of learning how to do the, do the job. So I had to help him so that he could help us. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, that's what the, that, that's what that did. But that, that, that particular chief petty officer was a, a, a remarkable man and a, a dear friend um, that I, uh, I communicate with uh, on a pretty regular basis. And every time I go through Denver, I stop and make sure I, I, I go visit him or stop and make sure I have a call with him because uh, he's a, he's a terrific guy. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I think I have got to say that this has been one of the most thorough conversations we have had with anyone in our podcasting life so far. And I, I can't think of a question. Um, You will. You will eventually. Let me see. I love leadership. You know, I think you've answered everything or gave us answers out. Um, What, I don't know, what is the, uh, if you already told us about it, you know, what is, as far as your leadership is concerned and using the principles that you've put together here, outside of the guy who was going to kill his wife, which is, that could be tough. The most difficult uh, experience you've had in in putting these these principles to play because I don't think you've told us the the, the toughest one or I've, I've been wrong before. Um. Uh, picking out the toughest one, you know, I never really thought about that in terms of what was the toughest. I okay, just, all right, that, but I I do remember. I think the toughest ones I've ever had to deal with is when I have to go explain to a senior why they're wrong. In the Navy, that um, sucks, I hear. <laughs> um, I, 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 remember some, I, I remember some piece of advice I got from a chief petty officer when I was in submarine school before I went to my first ship. And he was coming in to talk to us about how 
you know, chief, the chief, the, what's called the goat locker, the chief's mm-hmm. pet, the, the chief petty officer's nest, uh, deal, how they, how they deal with and what they look for in their officers. And I asked this chief, I said, chief, you know, my dad was enlisted in the Air Force for 20 years. And, uh, so I have a little bit of experience there, but how do you go about as a, as a young ensign or lieutenant junior grade to explain to a guy who's been in the Navy for 18 years that he just might happen to be wrong? How do you tell him? You're talking to a guy who might is old enough to be your father. How do you go tell him that he's he's not doing things right? That you need him to do something different. And the chief thought about it for for, for a second, and then he got a really kind of wry grin on his face. He goes, "How do you know I'm not your father?" <laughs> <laughs> so that taught me something uh, because <laughs> he deflected he deflected the. Uh, the question from uh, from being something you know deadly serious or very uncomfortable into something a little more funny, and so I learned that sometimes uh, sometimes uh, you you do that with a uh, with a little humor and a little good grace, and it helps make it easier to talk about things that are then difficult. Oh. And I learned that lesson with my executive officer one day. I went went to. At the end of the day, every day, you'd go to the executive officer when you're ready to go home. Time to go home and stay when you're reporting. Right? Say, exec, I'm, I'm heading out now. And um, so one day I went up there and, and uh, I said, uh, hey, XO, I'm, I'm heading home. And he turned to me, he looked at me, he said, he said, oh, you got everything done already? And I said, uh, no. He said, well, why are you going home? And I said, because... There aren't enough hours in the day to do everything that needs to be done. I said, so I prioritize the things that need to be done and I take care of all the big things. And then the things that can wait until tomorrow, those go on tomorrow's list. And he says, well, I have this a line of duty investigation I need uh, done. So I need you to stay another hour to help me with this line of duty investigation for something being done. At this point, I was like one of the most senior junior, senior division officers on the ship. Mm-hmm. And I said, XO, why don't you get, you know, this guy or that guy or the other guy to do this thing? He goes, oh, well, they're, they're, they're too busy. I said, XO, why are they busy? And he says, what do you mean? I said, they're busy because they haven't learned how to do the most important things. And they're being consumed by all the trivial things. That's why they don't have time to do things like line and duty investigations. I says, when are you going to stop rewarding them for being inefficient? And he looked at me and he goes, you know, you're right, but I really need this. I said, okay, so I'll stay. And I stayed an extra hour, hour and a half working on the project for him. And uh, and then uh, the next day when it was all done, he said, I really appreciate you doing this for me. I was really in a tight bind. I, I appreciate you doing that. He said, but you're right. Um, you, you have more collateral duties and a bigger responsibility in your division than all those other guys have. Uh, it's time they started picking up more of the load. And I said, thank you, XO. I said, if you want to relieve me of the six different uh, uh, collateral duties I have, like I was the ship movie officer, the welfare and rec officer, the human resources officer, several other duties I had that were beyond my actual duty that, uh, by my position. He started shipping those away to other people. So they would learn that they had to manage their time and they couldn't do everything. They had to work on what was most important. Um, 
that was a lesson I learned there, which was that perfection is the enemy of progress. You expect everything, you don't get most of what you could have had. So I may have to learn that one myself. Uh, it's it's a hard one. It, you, again. You, <laughs> it's hard. It, it, it's not easy because oftentimes the 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 distraction things are easier and more fun to do than the hard things, um, than, than the important things. And so you got to work work around that as you can. But uh, that was an important piece for me was learning how to use a little bit of uh, humility and humor when you uh, have to go to the uh, seniors and explain to them why they're wrong um, because they often don't like that. Um, they, they, they think I'm in the position of leadership. I spent my 14, 15 years getting here. Who the hell are you to tell me what to do? And the answer is, if you don't have the humility to ask that question of yourself and of others, if, if somebody in your, your, your outfit says, this is stupid, why are we doing it this way? If you don't have the humility to say, okay, if there's a better way to do it, let me know. I'm all ears. And sometimes they'll have a good idea and sometimes they won't. But the willingness to be able to hear whether or not there's another way of doing this that might be better, I think is really important to driving that despair out where the people won't say, well, I know how to do this, but I can't do it because Lieutenant Mays won't let me do it, you know, because... He's a by the book guy. He won't, he don't budge on that stuff. And I, I don't, um, and I know people who are like that. They would say, well, the book tells us everything we need to know. And when something needs to be changed with the book, the book tells us how to change it. No. <laughs> I've, I've never, I've never been in that mode because yeah. all the people who used to work for me in the federal government, I said, there's only two ways you get in trouble with me. The first one is don't make me think. And the second one is, that you have a number in mind. If you, if you come to me with either one of those, uh, you and I are going to have problems. <laughs> <We're> just, <laughs> I want you to think, and I don't want you to tell me what you think I want to hear. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell me what I need to hear. Um, and that's hard to do because the further up you get in, in terms of power and authority, the least like less likely you are to hear uh, potentially what you what you need to hear from people below you because they don't want to interrupt the apple cart. And they're afraid of the power. So learning how to uh, to talk to your bosses and explain to them that maybe the way they're doing things isn't necessarily the best way of doing business is a uh, is a really I think is a really important part of leadership because uh, um, you know uh, none of those guys in Lieutenant Callie's platoon in Vietnam looked up at him and said. Lieutenant, I'm not going to shoot civilians. I'm not going to shoot women and children. I'm not going to do it. Nobody did. He took that helicopter pilot landing between them and telling his, his the guys with the machine guns on the side of his, his helicopter said, anybody makes a move towards those people, you shoot them. Any of our guys take a move towards those people, you shoot them. Um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing. And being open to being hearing things uh, from others, whether they're your bosses or whether they're your peers or whether they're your subordinates, uh, I think is really important. And that's about self-awareness and that's about the honesty part, seeing the world the way that it is, uh, not just the way you want it to be. Um, 
because it's easy. I mean, if there's a book and there's instructions and I don't have to think, hey, I just you know, check mark, go down the line. Um, and uh, But I believe you always have a responsibility to think and you always have a responsibility to, you always have to accept responsibility for the actions, whether or not you were following the procedures or not. Uh, I think that's just it, it's beyond, beyond my comprehension to not do that. Um, but that's just me. <laughs> a lot of people who spend a lot of time just following the book, following the checkbook, following the rules, step one step. I, know, I knew some of them. <clears throat> uh, and and all of us have been have been that person at one time or another. You know, I don't want to think right now. I don't want to have to deal with something. If I just follow this checklist, everything will be fine. I'll just move on. Uh, everybody everybody has periods of of uh, just drifting into that because it's an easy path to follow. It's the it's the it's the, it's the more well-trodden path and so it's the easier one to follow um so it's worth to not to belabor our our english major there who robert frost admonished us not to do that because i i took the path less travel and it has made all the difference <laughs> am i right josh yes i sir. guess i'm gonna have to finish um, that book <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the, the that, that was the poem of uh robert frost yeah. poem of uh of the path, it's like the pathless traveled by. Absolutely, traveled, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah. and it's uh, that's you know you get to you get you get to make your choices. You know, my my father used to tell me that life is like a game of poker. You don't get any choice about what cards you get dealt, but you get all the choice of how you play the cards. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes you get to deal the cards, but not always. There you go. Well, Mr. Shear, what do you think? Well, this is normally the point where we ask, uh, you know, is there anything you wanted to get to that we didn't touch on? But um, I, <laughs> I can't imagine that that would be the case. <laughs> um, I, I see on your website that it says uh, social media is coming soon. Do you, do you have any of that launched yet, or is the website uh, the best way to get in touch with you? Well, the, the best way to get in touch with me is, is uh, through the contact page on my website power3leadership.com or you can just email me directly at my email address uh, semcon at comcast.net that's sem is my initials Stephen Edward Mays con is short for consulting uh, and so that's my business sem consulting um, so semcon at comcast.net will get, get me my phone number is also on the website um, Okay, we'll get that linked up in the show notes. So yeah, and uh, as far as as far as the social media, right now I've been using my uh, my personal Facebook and, and Twitter feed uh, to broadcast out to friends and people that I know uh, uh, about things I'm doing and podcasts and things like that. I'm uh, working on with my web designer to get those things more integrated into the uh, into the website, but that's the that's where I am right now, and uh, I'm just just uh, just moving into this new journey now. Uh, now that I'm semi-retired, my wife has decided she doesn't like me totally retired, so <laughs> I, I, still yeah. do, I still do some consulting for my old uh, old friends and stuff in the nuclear industry uh, that need help every once in a while, and uh, and I'm pursuing getting uh, opportunities to talk to people about leadership um, and. Uh, I just, I just think it's really important to do this because um, 
when you when we when we don't have good don't have good leadership we suffer. So yeah, the, the power3leadership.com, my website is a good place to go for that stuff. I also have some leadership lessons that are from the book and some that are uh, uh, not from the book. I think the most recent one I put up was a, was a, a, a topic on uh, out of the expectation realm, which was called uh, Bring Me a Rock. Uh, and but so many times when you find leaders that are in what I call bring me a rock syndrome, you know, bring me a rock and you bring a rock. And, well, that's not the kind of rock I wanted. I want a one this way. And so if you read that bring me a rock thing, it's, it's kind of a short, uh, short little ditty about, about how leaders need to own what is what and how, because uh, if they don't, then you just send people through iterations of over and over and over and over doing again until finally people figure out what it is you really wanted and how you really wanted it delivered. Uh, and that's just not conducive to uh, driving despair out of your organization. It just makes it worse. Um, the other one I, I'm, I'm particularly proud of is one on uh, uh, inspiration. That's on the uh, uh, website. It's about um, uh, a senior day at a college where a uh, uh, a young lady was uh, playing field hockey in the Division One uh, college program. And she blew out her knee. So on the last uh, game of regular season, she was in a cat. She had her leg all bandaged up and she was on crutches. But the coaches of the team, uh, when the team, at the beginning of the game, the team lines up at the midfield and they introduce the team starters. And then the teams go off and the starters come on the field and play begins. Well, this young lady was on crutches. But the coach put her in the starting lineup anyway, so that when the starting lineup was called out, she got to step forward in front of her teammates and have the crowd acknowledge her. And uh, when I saw this, the, her team, the picture, uh, which is on the website, of her teammates behind her, they're going, they're just ecstatic because they're recognizing this young lady. This is an example of confirmational leadership that I talked about earlier. Not only did they put her out there on the line, for the for the introductions, I mean that's that's no biggie. That's just introduction. But when the game started, she was standing on the field without her crutches, holding her field hockey stick, so that when the whistle blew and the game started, she hopped off the field so that her substitute could run on, and then her coaches and the trainer handed her crutches so she could move back to move back to bench. And there's a little uh, there's a little gif of there of her actually doing that. Those are the kinds of things I really, really like because they show people in very direct ways how some little things can be done to help other people. And the rewards to that, that person and the rewards to the people around them and the rewards to the people in the program going forward will be huge. That girl will never forget that her senior day. Her teammates will never forget that coach in that senior day. And that coaching staff will never forget the benefits that they all reap from having that girl uh, be able to have that recognition for what she had meant to the program. Um, those are the kinds of things that I think are, we don't do enough celebrating. Um, we don't do enough explaining and we don't do enough of uh, highlighting for other people to see. Um, Cause it's a, uh, because my, my, my daughter Jessica was also a field hockey player on a different school in Division One, and uh, 
she was the only senior that was not allowed to start on her senior day. Oh. Um, and so it was that particular one has a significant importance to me uh, because you can see the difference. There were girls on my, my daughter's team who were crying, going up to the coach and saying, let her take my spot. She should be on, she should be starting, you know? And so um, when you see that kind of thing, you see the impact it has on people and you see the impact it can have on people in the future. And you go, that's good leadership. That's the kind of thing I want to help people do because it matters. It'll matter to, it mattered to Jessica. It mattered, it mattered to that young lady uh, at the other school. It mattered to all the people around them. Some of them positively, some of them not so positively, but those things are really important. So, if you want to take a look at that, uh, those are two that I happen to happen to really like a lot. Awesome. Great. We'll make sure those get linked up also uh, so that people don't have to go search for them. <clears throat> so yeah, you, you can, have, if you, if you yeah. go on the website and, uh, and just click on the, uh, uh, there's a link on there for leadership lessons. You can find mm -hmm. all the leadership lessons are on there. And you just go to that one, you bring it up. And when you bring it up, you just copy the URL line and you'll be able to link to, link to it directly. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous in that department. Um, and uh, maybe a two podcast day. <laughs> uh, we will um, shoot you a link when when this is up. Uh, probably about two weeks. I think we're looking at. Um, okay. Well, and, and guys, guys, if you if you feel the need to. to to edit, cut, and uh, uh, leave some things out or do some of that. I will not be offended <laughs> because I'm here doing this not only to help myself, which I want to do, but also because to, to help you with the, the work that you guys do. Um, so whatever works best for you is what you should do. So uh, don't feel obligated uh, to me to make sure that everything we've talked about is in the podcast. You can. I will not be offended if you pick and choose and leave any particular thing in or out. That's up to you. Uh, I trust you guys to do the what's right for your clientele. Thank you. All right. So you have a wonderful rest of your day and enjoy the weekend. And um, you know, you let your wife know that uh, you know, if she needs you to uh, stay partially unretired and and you're running out of stuff to do that she can call us and we'll find you some work. Whatever works best for you guys, that, that'll work. I have a, and you'll see on the website, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but I have a very interesting pricing scheme for my consulting services. My pricing scheme is you pay me to come to wherever you are and that's all you pay me until after I'm done. Then after I'm done, you pay me what you think it was worth to you. Wow. I refuse right. to set a price because depending on the circumstances and who I'm talking to and what their situation is, it may be of more or less value to them than other people for the exact same stuff. Mm -hmm. So I will only accept what the person I'm working for feels that is value to them. Uh, I won't negotiate with them. I won't argue with them. I won't nitpick or anything else like that. My, my feeling is I'm here to provide a benefit to you. Um, and your only obligation to me is to pay my way to do it. 
And then if I do it after I've done it, if you find it valuable to you, uh, you can you can you can you can compensate me according to what the value is to you. Uh, I don't want I don't want once I don't I don't want one cent more than what the value is to you. Not a penny. You put a price on hugs because we need to know what to. I, I, no, I don't. I, I give away hugs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do. I, I have no problem with that. Completely um, unusual. So yeah, cool. So that's 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 the way I do. That's the way I, I do things. And uh, I know there are people who are in the business of consulting who cringe when you say that because they. They think you, they, you, should, you should set a price and you should stick to it and not take anything less than what's, what, your, what you think your, your stuff is worth. And I'm going like, I go back to the honesty thing. I don't know what my stuff is worth to you mm. or to anybody else I'm talking to. I hope it's worth something to you because I believe it's important to me and I hope I'm doing it to be uh, of, of value to you. But for me to say, I can tell in advance, no matter what situation is going on, how much value it should be to you, that would be arrogance and I'm not going to do it. So I, I just, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do that. Yeah. So we will bear that in mind. So if you have anybody who, uh, who needs the, needs the help or wants to talk about leadership, uh, you just send them my way. I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to share what I, what I think I know <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> What, what what I think might be the benefit to them with anybody who needs it because uh, awesome. that's what I'm about. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Show notes and more at jkwdpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends, and we will see you next week. A Better Humanhood Production.